0: From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. On the 2nd of July, 1982, Mr. Larry Walters, an aviation enthusiast, tied 45 helium balloons to a patio chair and armed himself with an air gun and a book. He climbed into the chair and took off from his home in San Pedro, California. The air gun was so that he could pop the balloons when he wanted to come down. The book was to pass the time. Unfortunately, Mr. Walters rose at such an alarming rate that he dropped his air gun. He was last spotted going up past the window of a rather startled Pan Am 747 (laughs) pilot at 15,000 feet near Los Angeles International Airport. I can reveal exclusively this evening that there is no truth in the rumor that in his wanderings in space, Mr. Walter renamed himself I. Lander and is now drilling samples from Comet 67P. (laughs) Happily, urban myth has it that Mr. Walters somehow made it back to Earth with the help of a military helicopter and put his flying career behind him. Last month, some 32 years later, on the 24th of October, 2014, you may have read that a Google executive Alan Eustace, strapped himself to a single helium balloon, rose to 135,000 feet, jumped out, and broke Felix Baumgarten's world record for the highest freefall, 25 miles. Major Beaumont would have admired their spirit of adventure But the difference was that whereas Mr. Eustace and Herr Baumgarten studied endlessly, looked at every angle, minutely calculated every risk, and limited the downside, our unfortunate Mr. Walters did not do any homework and not even calculated the lift. It was the same sense of adventure that propelled Major Beaumont into the stratosphere, legally, as the pioneer of international aviation law, when suddenly, in 1924, following the Imperial Airways Accident, he turned his small family law firm, founded by his grandfather in 1836, to focus on aviation. Major Beaumont always did his homework And that is why he established his legendary legal aviation practice. In 1929, he attended the IATA Warsaw Conference. In 1954, he was elected chairman of ICAO. We owe a great debt to Major Beaumont for his contribution to international aviation law and his part in the development of legal and regulatory structures which has led to the flourishing commercial aviation world that we all enjoy today apart from those of us who don't manage to get speedy boarding on EasyJet. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be asked to give this Beaumont Lecture 2014 I confess it is difficult to refuse when you have your arm exquisitely twisted by a certain master of the art of persuasion, Robert Lawson, QC. It's a privilege to follow in the vapor trail of some very distinguished names who've given this lecture, including some heroes of mine who aren't present today so they won't blush, Robert Webb, QC, and Tony Tyler, the CEO of IATA. And I'm sorry that the current doyen of the aviation legal world, Harold Kaplan, isn't with us this evening. I'd like to play a special tribute uh, to Harold, who founded the Air Law Group over 50 years ago and has been an inspiration to many of us in the legal aviation world as Major Beaumont was. I've been asked to talk to you this evening about lessons from the Nimrod Review. The Nimrod Review was about risk and risk management. Risk, of course, is the stuff of aviation and of life itself. Flying heavier-than-air machines and cramming lots of people into a steel tube and launching it 10,000 miles away to a small tarmac strip halfway across the world is still one of the most complex things we do, apart from that is Morris dancing (laughs) and solving the West Lothian question. (laughs) I'm a judge, so I'm not allowed to express any political opinions. (laughs) So strap yourselves to a few helium balloons uh, this evening for a tour de raison of the Nimrod Review. I'll give Robert Lawson the air gun. He can always spot and shoot down any hot air or infelicity in my arguments. There's much ground to cover. If you are good and listen attentively I may, as Martin Barrow knows, show you some PowerPoints later, but only if you're very good (laughs) and listen. I want to begin by making a few preliminary remarks and highlighting the triple sins which have for so long bedeviled risk management. One, organizational complexity. Two, overly prescriptive regulation. And three, a beguiling underestimation of the human dimension. Accidents are caused by mankind, not machines and not Martians. I commend to you three writers who have much influenced me and my thinking during the Nimrod Review and whose work has intrigued me ever since. The first is, as you've seen from the flyer, the great economist E.F. Schumacher, who wrote, Small is Beautiful. If you remember nothing else from this lecture, remember his quote on the flyer. Any intelligent fool can make things bigger and more complex. It takes a touch of genius and a lot of courage to move in the opposite direction. I'm a great believer in simplicity, organizational simplicity, philosophical simplicity and practical simplicity. There is a false comfort in complexity. Remember, simplicity is your friend. Complexity is normally the enemy of safety (coughs) and of good risk management. Secondly, I commend to you the enlightened Dutch traffic guru, Hans Monderman, who I quoted in my report, who said this, the greater number of prescriptions, the more people's sense of personal responsibility dwindles. The greater the number of prescriptions, the more people's sense of personal responsibility dwindles. Hans Mondemann worked out that if you reduced the cornucopia of road signs littering the streets, drivers, cyclists, and pedestrians had a greater sense of personal responsibility and an awareness of what was going on around them and fatality rates fell sharply. Elaborate, prescriptive, prolix regulations in large, fat, impressive files may look good and give you a warm feeling, but it is generally bad and very boring to read. Third, I commend to you in this opening the works of the Nobel Prize winner, Professor Paul Becker, who sadly died earlier this year, who applied economic methodology to human choices. His economic approach assumed, rightly, that people confronted with choices act rationally and in a calculated way, balancing various motivations and making a cost-benefit analysis, including whether they'd get caught for violations of rules, regulations, and even the law. So much of risk management ignores, in my view, the all-pervasive human dimension and risks embedding perverse incentives. That's the difficult bit of this lecture. You can all now relax. I want to tell you this, first off, it is important to remember that there are no new accidents There are just lessons to be learned from the ones that we've had, as the head of the HSC, Judith Hackett, uh, observed uh, recently. The lessons of Nimrod are not new. The organization causes of the loss of Nimrod, XV-230, echo the loss of the space shuttles Challenger and Columbia, the Brugger disaster in 87, the King's Cross fire later that year, the Marchioness in 1989, the BP Texas City disaster in 2005, Fukushima, Bhopal, Three Mile Island, the BP Deepwater Horizon imbroglio. If you think... Safety and risk management is expensive. Try having an accident like that. They're looking at 30 billion and going north. It's fitting that I should be giving this lecture here at the Royal Aeronautical Society now, and it's very nice to be back. I don't get out much these days. We've just passed the fifth anniversary, as it happens, of when my Nimrod report was laid before Parliament on the 28th of October, 2009. I'll now turn to the loss of RAF Nimrod XV230 and highlight for you some of the hard lessons that have been learned from this most painful episode in British military aviation history. On the 2nd of September 2006, XV-230 was on a routine mission over Helmand province in Afghanistan in support of NATO and Afghani troops. Within 90 seconds of completing air-to-air refueling from a TriStar tanker, The crew were alerted by two almost simultaneous fire warnings. A fire warning in the bomb bay and a smoke hydraulic mist warning in the elevator bay. Within a minute, the aircraft depressurized. Within two minutes, the spy camera operator reported, we've got flames coming from the rear of the engines on the starboard side. Emergency drills were carried out and a mayday was transmitted the pilots immediately diverted to Kandahar airfield. Faced with a life-threatening emergency, every member of the crew acted with calmness, bravery, and professionalism, and in accordance with their training. Six minutes after the first fire warning, a Harrier jump jet saw XV-230 explode at about 3,000 feet and crash. The crew had no chance of controlling the fire. Their fate was already sealed before the first fire warning went off. The fire had broken out in a part of the lower fuselage of the aircraft which was unreachable and not covered by an automatic fire suppression system. It was the biggest single loss of life of British service personnel in one instant in theater since the Falklands War in 1982. Although the aircraft came down in hostile territory, the crash site was secured by Royal Canadian Dragoons and members of 35 Squadron RAF for long enough for the black box and the bodies to be recovered by an RAF combat search and rescue team, and a detailed photographic record was taken of the wreckage before the Taliban then moved in and carried off parts of the wreckage as trophies. With a small, brilliant military and civilian team, I had the privilege of conducting a two-year inquiry at the request of the then Secretary of State for Defence between 2007 and 2009. My terms of reference required me to establish three things causation, responsibility, and lessons to be learned. We had invaluable assistance from the U.S. military, from NASA, from the HSE, from the CAA, from British Airways, and many other organizations and individuals. The inquiry took 20 months studied 50,000 documents spanning from the 1930s to the present day, running to over a million pages, interviewed and cross-examined hundreds of witnesses of all ranks in many organizations, visited many RAF sites and other locations around the world, including the Air Force base in Kirkland, New Mexico, and NASA. We examined Nimrods and flew in them and a very well-known QC, who's not present today, was very airsick. (laughs) Very airsick, and he hasn't forgotten it. The inquiry was urgent, since it had implications for current operations. I found that the causes of the fire were not enemy action, or friendly fire, but a pure engineering failure. This caused a major shock both in the military community and with the British public because pure tech accidents should not happen. These sorts of major catastrophic accidents, however, with a long gestation are mercifully rare, but they're a golden opportunity, a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to learn deep and important lessons. It was a hard lesson for the RAF and others, but a free lesson for everyone else. And the strapline of my report was a failure of leadership, culture, and priorities. That's the only PowerPoint you're getting for the moment, because one or two of you at the back are not paying complete attention. (laughs) I'd like to pay tribute to the MOD and to the Military Aviation Authority which, under the outstanding leadership of Air Marshal Satimo Anderson and now Air Marshal Dick Garwood, set about implementing the full lessons of the Nimrod Review. And the MAA is now well on the way to building a world-class organization in a remarkably short period of time the principles and reforms which are being embedded by the MAA are not only being rolled out to the other domains, the Army and the Navy, but have become, I understand, a model in many other countries. There is, however, always a danger of history repeating itself. With the current unprecedented round of cuts, the need to expand further the life of certain equipment, the entering into of more complex shared arrangements with our NATO partners, there is more than just potential for further concomitant change, complication, dilution and distraction, and the eye being off the ball. And This gives an urgency uh, to the current continued work uh, of the MAA uh, and its other organizations. I want to talk to you about the seven steps to the loss of Nimrod and it's really very simple but it spans 30 years when the following seven steps combined fatally to cause this accident. One, poor design and modifications from the 1960s onwards gave rise to the risk of fuel coming into contact uh, with heat. Two, there was a history of fuel leaks in the 70s and 80s, which did not ring alarm bells and had become what's called the normalization of deviants. Leaks had become normal, but in fact they were deviant. Third, there was an increase in operational tempo in the 90s and early 2000s with the heavy use of Nimrod aircraft particularly in theatres such as Kosovo, Afghanistan and Iraq Four there was a problem increasingly of maintenance of this increasingly aged aircraft with its out of service date being regularly extended again and again Fifth there was, meanwhile, distraction because of major organizational change and cuts in funding following the Strategic Defense Review of 98. Sixth, there was then the outsourcing of the Nimrod safety case, which I'll come back to in 2004-05, to which produced a large amount of paper which said that the aircraft was safe and that's why they're called safety cases. But as I recommended, they should be called risk cases. I'll come back to that. But manifestly, the MR2 was not safe. The safety case missed glaring risks. And then on the 2nd of September, there was air-to-air refueling, and very much the inevitable happened. Those are the steps which led to it. I want now to tell you of seven themes that struck me forcibly during the inquiry as it progressed. And they are as follows. First, complexity and change. The sheer complexity of everything in the MOD, the organization, the rules, the standards, the processes, were of Byzantine complexity and were constantly changing. Complexity and change had become the altar at which many senior management worshipped. And this is a problem which many large organizations, governmental and in the private sector, Suffer from. Two, there was management by committee and consensus. I found more committees, subcommittees, working parties, sub working parties, etc., dealing with safety matters than there are in the UN. It was amazing, truly. Third, there was the dilution of responsibility and accountability. The immediate casualty of this web of complexity was a dilution of responsibility and accountability, and often in inverse proportion to rank. It was difficult to divine who was responsible for what, because there were so many answers, let alone who was accountable. I'm a great believer in accountability. Accountability is the reciprocal of responsibility in any properly run organization. Accountability is the reciprocal of responsibility. Four, I found a distinct lack of challenge, a reluctance to ask awkward questions or to be seen to be challenging orthodoxy. Value Mr. Awkward, at the back of the meeting, who asks the difficult questions that you don't want to hear. Although not obviously this evening. <laughs> Five, migration of responsibility. I found that there'd been a migration of responsibility away from where it should have been to my mind. Namely, with the operators who were most directly affected by the decisions, all the way to warm offices back home by those who were not so directly affected by the decisions apart from in relation to their salaries. And this was accompanied by what I regarded as a misalignment of decision-making power, the information flow, and budgetary control all of which should be linear in the same line. Sixth, as a triumph of generalists over specialists. I found a lack of appreciation of specialist skills, especially engineering. Are there any engineers present? I love engineers. <laughs> and there was too great a reverence for soft-handed, well-rounded generalists like me. We are merely servants at the altar. Engineers are the gods when one's talking about this sort of kit. Seventh, The seventh theme which struck me was that there was a drowning of conscience. I found that the still small voices of conscience were getting drowned out by the volume of background noise and paper shuffling and skepticism. Moral courage should not be in inverse proportion to rank. That's the difficult part. I want to now give you seven pillars because this lecture is as you've seen I hope elegantly structured so you can remember it with seven steps, Nimrod, seven themes and now the seven pillars of Nimrod. And what I've done is select for you from a cornucopia of points in the report I think there were 84 recommendations uh, of which 80 were implemented. which I think are particularly relevant here today. First, it is important to look at the underlying organization causes of any major accident. It is easy to blame the guy or the girl with the screwdriver or the joystick or the clipboard in his or her hand, but it is vitally important to examine the fundamental organizational causes of accidents. I found 12 uncanny and worrying parallels between the organizational causes of the loss of Nimrod XV-230 and the loss of the NASA space shuttle Columbia. And in rapid fire, and some of you will know this, that bit of the report, they are as follows, one, the can-do attitude, and we're the perfect place. Two, a torrent of change and organizational turmoil in big organizations. Three, the imposition of business principles and business speech. Three, sorry, four, cuts in resources and manpower, often like a death of a thousand cuts, cuts going on all the time, leaning, which is an absurd word for the process. I always thought it was to do with that, but I was disabused very quickly. Five, the dangers of outsourcing to contractors, and I'm going to come back to that because I'm a bit of a high priest on the subject of outsourcing, as some of you will know. Seven, dysfunctional databases. That's how I feel at the moment, life is so busy. Eight, PowerPoint engineering, which is a favorite subject of a friend of mine in the second row. Nine, uncertainties as to out-of-service dates, constantly shifting. Ten, the normalization of deviance. On Columbia, on 80% of the flights, foam came off was so common it became normal even though it was deviant. I see a lot of deviants in the audience this evening. (laughs) Eleven, success engendered optimism. It's never happened before, we're doing well, profits are up, it's all good. Twelve, the few, the tired, stretched organization. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is this. Beware assumptions. It's assumed that the Nimrod type was safe because it had flown safely for 30 years. Big mistake. It was assumed the the Nimrod safety regime was safe because there was a complex safety system. Big mistake. It was assumed that if you outsource the safety case to the original Nimrod manufacturers, you could relax. Big mistake. The SAS have a saying which I will express in slightly less colorful language this evening. But if you really want to remember nothing else from this lecture, remember this short phrase, Assumptions are the mother of all cock-ups. Assumptions are the mother of all cock-ups, and it is dead true. Piper Alpha was assumed to be the safest rig in the world the day before it blew up. Last year was the 25th anniversary. Third, avoid what I call the three comfort blankets of complexity, compliance, and consensus. Do not have a compliance culture Don't surround yourself with people who tell you what you want to hear and how good you are. Value dissent. Fourth, as Lord Cullen said to me, safety cases should be an aid to thinking, not an end in themselves. A culture of paper safety had grown up The safety case regime had developed severe shortcomings in my view which included bureaucratic length, obscure language, a failure to see the wood for the trees, archaeological documentary exercises, routine outsourcing to industry who'd never seen the kit, lack of vital operator input, and a whole lot of other uh, things which led them essentially to being shelfware. I recommended the safety cases should be named, renamed, as I said, risk cases. In my view, safety cases uh, should be like the Pompidou Center in Paris. All the working should be visible on the outside, not the inside. And the trouble is, because there you've got a fat, glossy document given to you by consultants which cost a lot of money, which has safety case on it, you think that the thick kit is safe, uh, or that the computer system won't drop out and have to be rebooted as it was just now. Fifth, the key, as I said earlier, to any properly run organization, I believe, is one word, accountability. And this means having clearly defined and identified duty holders. The establishment of clearly defined duty holders was a cornerstone of the Nimrod report. Duty holders must be clearly defined and accountable. They should know who they are, what their responsibilities are, and everybody else should know who they are. There can be no real or meaningful responsibility if it is not accompanied, in my view, by the knowledge that the person or persons in charge of that particular aspect uh, will ultimately be held accountable. Sixth, this is a happy recommendation, value engineers and engineering and technical skills there was a palpable and steady downgrading and undervaluing of engineers and engineering at all levels of the MOD between 2000 and 2006. This was exemplified most starkly by the abolition of the headline post and title Chief Engineer RAF and a glass ceiling and decline in numbers of engineers reaching the top echelons. And that had to change seventh and you've been very good so the time time will come very shortly when I'll give you a treat if you continue to listen if you have to outsource it is important not to outsource your thinking and to remain an intelligent customer Large organizations and government departments have become increasingly hooked on the heroin of outsourcing. Outsourcing has many short-term attractions, but it can quickly become addictive. It can be a quick fix to reducing employee numbers. It can get things off balance sheet. It can get tricky problems off one's desk but it has many perils. It can lead to unclarity as to where the risk really lies. It can be corrosive to in-house skills and corporate memory. It can be an irreversible mistake. BP's Gulf Oil Spill imbroglio and Toyota's accelerator pedal problems are a reminder of the dangers of outsourcing. NASA's shuttle's program had become, quote, a slimmed-down, contractor-run operation to its ultimate cost. In my view, it would be a fundamental mistake if the British military became a slimmed-down, contractor-run operation. I don't think it will. In summary, in the Nimrod review, I advocated three things A, a return to and focus on core values and technical skills, B, a tightening of the lines of responsibility and clear identification identification of duty holders. And three, a rolling back of the comfort blanket of too much procedure to make life simpler. You've earned a treat. I'm about to commit a sin. One of my apparently most famous recommendations in the Nimrod review was that the ubiquitous use of PowerPoint should be discouraged because it can lead people to watch rather than think. Well, you can all relax now and watch. You've, you've earned it. I want to show you some uh, of these pictures. There we are with our iceberg um, and planes sailing around it. Everybody's heard of the Nimrod Review and various other uh, incidents. But we're in our bobbing little uh, yellow boat very happily because we've read the report and it's all hunky-dory. However, it's what lies beneath the surface that always matters. How many of you have heard of Heinrich? Heinrich was a genius. He analyzed a whole lot of 1920s industrial accidents and realized that there was a correlation between the number of, um, you had an accident and underneath that there were normally roughly 30 incidents which might have warned you of the accident. Beneath that there were going on 300 hazardous conditions and non-compliances. And down below you've got 1,000 unreported unsafe acts The trick to life is mine the data. If you can get a good reporting culture and find out about these unreported thousand unsafe acts, then you can learn the lessons uh, the easy way rather than the difficult way from the top. It's all about the data. How many of you have heard of Professor Reason? He had one brilliant inspired idea, which was was the Swiss cheese model. And for those of you who don't know, this is Emmental cheese. All systems gain weaknesses. It's when they line up, um, do you get uh, an accident when all the defenses uh, line up and the weaknesses in them. Some of you uh, may have seen this, which I, I applied reason to Nimrod and very quickly You could see the 30-year gestation of the Nimrod accident. Been in 69, there was a cross-feed fitted. More modifications in 79. Um, More modifications in 82. And then in 90, there was a trend of leaks. In 98 onwards, strategic defense review, cuts and change. 2001, dilution, distraction, increased operational tempo, and then the safety case was drawn up. And there were many holes, particularly here, and essentially it was an accident waiting to happen um, over many, many years. How many of you have seen this diagram before? It's the famous bow tie. There are a lot of SWATs in the front here. You get top marks. Engineers, you see, that's why. Um, This is a clever diagram because essentially it divides the defenses into two halves. Category on the left are defenses preventing an incident, like a fire. Um, If you have a fire on a train or a plane or a ship or whatever, it needn't necessarily be a disaster because if you have ameliorating defenses which prevent it becoming a disaster, then your system works. What I did in a flash of inspiration in the bath one day is combine the two to create this, which apparently has been helpful to academics and others. But essentially, if you have good design, good inspection and maintenance, good quality assurance and training, you can prevent an event taking place in an organization, whether it's a physical event or derivatives, banking, whatever. If you have a warning, then a control, and a backup, an evacuation, then you can prevent that event becoming a disaster. And it helps intellectually to break these things down so you can explain both to yourself and your employees why it is that this chap's job is important because he's relying on him and he's relying on him. If they can see themselves in context as to why their particular role is important in the chain, then you will get people um, to be, have a sense of value about their jobs. I saw more risk um, hazard maestresses and different um, types of them than I've had hot breakfasts and I thought they ought to be uh, standardized. Um, most of you will have seen the bathtub curve The royal family are generally only flown in aircraft in their midlife. The reason is that when you buy a bit of software from Bill Gates or somebody else, it's normally got a lot of gremlins, so never buy a new latest iPad. You want to buy the second generation. Um, Here is the great period. Um, Here we are in the wearout. This is where I am currently. particularly given the the air conditioning doesn't seem to be working, you're very long suffering. We'll have a drink shortly. Um, in, In the 1980s, sorry, 1990s and 80s, life was fairly simple. People knew where they stood and the delegation chain was pretty crystal clear. You have the Secretary of State of Defense, CAS, Chief of the Air Staff, Navy, Army, delegating to Chief Engineer RAF, three-star, two-star, four-star, three-star, two-star, and the Heads of Engineering. Within five years, um, dare I say it, and this is not a political comment, of Tony Blair's Britain, that had changed to this. I asked for an organogram of the way in which the MOD were organized, and six uh, office and civil servants, very senior, came to see me and put that up on the PowerPoint. And as soon as I saw it, I had to go and lie down. Because <laughs> I knew we had a problem, Houston. This was their next PowerPoint, which was the regulatory structure, which gave me a headache, and I had to take Valium. And I took a machete to a great deal of this, as you've seen, and sought to simplify it. Um, That is the MAA, its current structure. Um, And we haven't got time for me to explain this structure, but life, I believe, was very, very uh, different. I want to finish with this um, slide, um, which is about culture. I looked at culture and had a great deal of help from NASA, who'd adopted a model of four cultures, a reporting culture, a just culture, flexible response to problems, and a learning culture, which were all very well intellectualized and sensible. But I felt there was something fundamentally missing from that, which was a questioning culture, which I have overlaid on this model Uh, you need to have a questioning culture and people asking the difficult questions what if, why explain, show me prove it that is the way in which you get both the top, the organisation and the bottom to think questioning culture is the key to all of uh, life in a way Um, and that is why I will now stop so that there's a chance for one or two of you before we go off and have drinks to ask any questions. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.